All right, today we're going to uh, come to an end of our divorce and remarriage study, uh, but I wanted to talk about what marriage ultimately is and uh, maybe the distinction between marriage and the one flesh union and also what repentance then looks like. Um, the difficulty of this particular lesson is going to be because we don't have an explicit uh, law declaring what repentance looks like in this situation or the various situations we find ourselves um, of perhaps like a second marriage or something of that nature. And so we're kind of left on our own to just take principles from the scripture and try to do what is the best starting now uh, in terms of uh, what we're to do with, uh, let's say, a second marriage and whatnot. So let's begin first in a word of prayer. Father, again, we thank you that we can come to your word, Lord, that even though it may not explicitly say what we're to do, it still can function as a guide to help us along our way to glorify you and to be your images, to be the people who are to be creational in the world with what we do from here. Father, I just pray that we glorify you. We, none of us wants to sanction sin uh, either way. And so help us now understand these things. If we are wrong, Lord, correct us, but ultimately... Uh, help us uh, have the desire to glorify you in whatever, we, whatever way we go from here. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so uh, here's the issue. So in church history, what, what do you do with a, a couple who has been remarried? Uh, in church history, they typically either excommunicated them uh, if a woman went ahead and disregarded the church and she got married or whatever, or a man did the same, um, sometimes excommunication looked like withholding communion from them. Uh, it just, it depends. It seems to vary a little bit, but obviously the church wanted to make a statement that this should not have been done. Now, there's many facets to this, and I, I want to make it clear that it seems that the church does this when someone is aware of what the Bible teaches, what the church had taught, and they rebel against it and do it anyway. It doesn't seem that the church ever did it. Because remember, you, even from the first century on, you've got Greco-Roman people who have had sex before, likely been in numerous marriages before, and they're becoming Christians. It doesn't seem to be the practice of the church at any time to go through all those marriages and say, you need a divorce, you need a divorce, you need a divorce. And that's one of the, the ways that people deal with this subject. They say, well, if you're, you have a second marriage now and you've come to realize the Bible didn't like that second marriage, well, you should get a divorce uh, and then you know marry your previous husband or something or whatever it might be. Um, that doesn't seem to be the way the church has at all dealt with it. And I think for a reason, I think it actually breaks numerous biblical commands. I think it's wrong to do that. That I, I don't think that's what repentance looks like according to the Bible. Um, and so one of the things I want to talk about is the distinction between the, before we get into the other, uh, a distinction between the one flesh union and the actual marriage commitment, that is the, the actual ceremony, the commitment, the covenant that you make with someone else and then seal that deal with a one flesh union. Um, a lot of people think, well, because of the one flesh union, because of that argument, it's not just that you'll be committing adultery when you get remarried, it's that you'll be committing perpetual adultery. 
So it'll be always adultery. And so then the obvious conclusion is, is that you can never sleep with your second spouse again. You need to be done. That's it. Um, now, here's, here's, there's numerous problems to this. The, the first one is, is that you're not just, we're not just told that you're made one flesh with someone you marry. Uh, I want you to notice this. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are parts of Christ's body? Shall I then take the parts of Christ's body and make them parts of the body of a prostitute? Never, meganoida, may it never be. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits, they commit outside their body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul is arguing here in 6 of 1 Corinthians that you are actually made one flesh with anyone, including an unbeliever, including a pagan prostitute, anyone that you've ever slept with, you are one flesh with that person. Does that mean that you can never get married? Was that the position of the church? That you've become a Christian, you've slept with other people, you can no longer get married, any marriage that you entered into after that is invalid, uh, are you married to the, the prostitute if you've committed adultery then? And then, so you've become one flesh with her? And the answer to all of that is no. Now, here's the issue. Are you one flesh with the person? Yeah. Does that then affect uh, your marriage? Yes, it does. Does that break your marriage? No. Uh, because the one flesh union and the marriage relationship are two different things. The marriage relationship, the marriage covenant, is you making a covenant with someone else and basically like a, a Caesarean vassal treaty type thing with, with uh, a man, between a man and a woman and consummating that in a one flesh union. That's what Jesus says. God holds together. You're bound in that, uh, that, that one flesh union. But it's very clear that you can become one flesh with other people that you have sex with. That's the whole point. You're becoming one flesh with them in the sexual act. You are participating in their body. That's what one flesh is really talking about. You are participating in the physical body of one another. That means you will participate in the physical ailments of one another if they're transmissible. You'll, you'll participate in, you know, whatever. I mean, all the things that are joined together, you're becoming one. And that's why Paul argues here, you're basically like a temple of God becoming uh, one with the temple of demons, uh, a prostitute. You should not be doing that. But does that invalidate? Does that somehow say that, well, you're married to that person? Well, no. You're married to the person when you have a contract between you and the person. That's why when Jesus says, let no man divorce, he's not saying that some man is able to dissolve the one flesh union. You get people making these arguments like, 
oh, well, if the, the one flesh union was indissolvable, then why is Jesus saying that no man should do it? I mean, obviously a man can do it then. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying what God has joined together in that one flesh union, don't then on the human level break the marriage contract and act like it's dissolved and then go off and marry someone else. That's what he's arguing. But can you break the contract unfaithfully in sin or even in trespass and ignorance? Yeah, absolutely. That's why Jesus is saying, don't do it. Uh, because you're supposed to then see that you're bound to that person uh, in a one flesh union. And so it's more than just a contract. That's really what Jesus is saying. It's more than a contract. You're bound to the person. And it only, only dissolves when the other person dies. Now, the same thing would be true of a prostitute in the sense of the one flesh union. Uh, you're bound to the prostitute until the prostitute or you die. Does that mean you can't get married? Well, no, it just means that you basically committed adultery there, uh, somewhere in the mix, and you need to be forgiven. If it's perpetual adultery, you can never be married and never be with anyone else um, because you're, being, you're committing adultery not on the prostitute. You're actually, the prostitute is the adultery, and you're committing it on your spouse. So it's better not to marry because then you're going to be committing adultery. At least with having slept with the prostitute and never getting married, you're not committing adultery. You're, you know, committing sexual immorality, but not adultery. So my point to you is this. I don't think the answer uh, that, uh, yeah, you know, if you're in a second marriage, you should just break that second marriage. I think that misunderstands the nature of what Christ is saying, the nature of the union, um, the idea that, well, if you're bound in flesh with anyone else, God will never consider a marriage after that as a legitimate marriage. That would be the bulk of people throughout history and even in the early Christian period because they had probably as a rite of passage in Greco-Roman society slept with someone else or slept with a prostitute or done something. Even here with the Corinthians, he's telling them, don't sleep with prostitutes. Very next section, get married. And rather than committing prostitution and participating in prostitution, get married. Meaning that they are participating some of them in prostitution. It's something that they absolutely should not do it. It's evil. Uh, but some of them clearly were. But then the solution is, well, get married and, and leave, throw that all away. Um, yet if God perpetually saw you as committing adultery throughout, that would not be the advice. You could never get married because you're one flesh with that prostitute and you'd be committing adultery on your wife or, or husband or whatever. So I, I don't think that's the answer. Here's what I think the actual answer is. I think the answer is um, if you have been divorced in ignorance, you have been remarried in ignorance, and this goes for if before you were believers or after, right? Because marriage is not somehow... It's marriage if you're only in God, but not marriage outside of God. A lot of people have that idea, but that's not true. Other people are married too, um, it, it, whether they're in the Lord or not. Uh, they're still married because it's a contract you're making. You're still becoming one flesh. It's rooted in creation. It's all mankind. It's not just Christians who are married. And so if you're married before you come to Christ, you're still married. And this is Paul's kind of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 7 to where if, you're, if you married an unbeliever beforehand, your, your spouse is an unbeliever because you got married you know, before you became a Christian and now you're a Christian, you're not somehow unmarried. You're still married. You're still bound in one flesh to that person. 
So if you find yourself as single now, again, my advice would be the same. The unbeliever left you or whatever happened in the past or whatever, um, remain as you are. And, and so I'll argue that in a moment. I think that you should remain as you are. So I think the solution is don't sin anymore. In other words, don't repeat the sin. Don't do it again. If the Lord doesn't want you to divorce and remarry, don't divorce again. Don't remarry again. And you might say, well, uh, I, I just want to break with my spouse and go with my previous one. Well, now you're breaking the law because the law says you're not allowed to do that. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. You're not allowed to return to your previous spouse once you've been married. So now you're breaking the law, arguing that somehow that's more righteous to break the law. It's like, no, that's called a toeva, abomination to God. So the same word used of homosexuality and idolatry and all of that, that's an abomination. Toeva, don't do it. So now you're telling people to actually sin against God and commit what God considers an abomination. They're not allowed to go back to the previous spouse once they've been married to someone else. So what, what should people do? Here's the biblical argument that I'm going to make. In Numbers 39, it says, Every vow a widow or a divorced woman pledges to fulfill is binding on her. Now, she may make this vow in ignorance, not knowing that she is not to remarry someone else. Uh, the problem is, is that the vow is still binding. A vow made in ignorance, they, when people don't realize they're sinning against the Lord, and by, I, I say really should be trespass against the Lord because they don't realize that they're breaking a law of God. Um, when it's made, it's still binding. God tells people they're still supposed to do it. Here's the passage. I'm going to read this to you. This is Joshua 9. This actually happens. It comes up in Israel's history where they make a vow in ignorance uh, against what God has commanded them, and God then tells them to do it. And so we're going to read uh, Joshua 9, verses 9 uh, through, let's see, sorry, I, I think to the end. Yeah, through, uh, through verse 27. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, 
We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a covenant with them, to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and kiriath Jerem. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we fear greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. All right. So as you can see, there's numerous elements in this chapter that show us that God demands you keep a vow. And that's actually much more important than I think people realize today. Keeping a vow means you're keeping a vow not only to the person, but to God. And so the only time you're not to keep a vow is a vow when you make it to like a false god or something or a vow to actually like sin, like, and you know that you're sinning, not, not a vow that you make, uh, in ignorance where you're still breaking the law of God. It's against God, but you're unaware of it. Um, notice here, God doesn't say, well, that vow is invalid because I told you to do this and uh, you in ignorance made this vow with them and you're supposed to kill them, the Gibeonites. And so your vow is invalid. That's not what God says. God says your vow, you're going to keep that vow. It's like, oh, I don't understand God, but you commanded us otherwise. Now we're going to be perpetually in sin because every day we don't kill the Gibeonites We're actually disobeying you every day. Every day it's a perpetual sin. That's not the way God views it at all. That's the way you're viewing it. That's not the way God views it. God forgives them, it seems to me, forgives them, looks over the fact that they would be sinning against him every day and says, no, what I want you to do now is what repentance looks like, you're going to keep your vow with the Gibeonites. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance does not look like Break your vow and then obey my original command. That's not what it is. 
Uh, it's obey the vow now. In other words, start where you are now, and from this point on, obey me in all things. And that starts with you obeying your vow, and now you can't obey me in terms of killing them because you have to obey the vow, but I'm telling you that's what you're going to do now. Obey your vow. Obey your oath. Obey the covenant that you made with them. Now, I want to apply that because this would be then them breaking the command of God, and you can view it as a perpetual thing, but in reality, they're not doing a perpetual thing because God's looking over that and saying, no, what you do in repentance is you start where you're at and start being obedient from here. And don't disobey me again. That's where you start. You don't start by untangling the web and trying to get back to a place where you never sinned against God and you just start from the beginning of your life and go forward from there like a restart. No, you can't do that. How do you untangle the web? You can't. And so instead of untangling the web, you start where you are at. And I think this is what Paul is trying to get at in 1 Corinthians 7. He basically makes this statement after he talks about uh, the fact that people had married, you know, they, they had married before they became Christians, and now they have an unbelieving wife. In uh, chapter 7, he says, Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. So when God called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Here's the rule. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain freedom, do so. For the one who uh, was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called in, as, uh, is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. In other words, when you became, when you understood, when you became not only a believer, but also understood this, because I realize even as a believer, you probably didn't know this. Uh, now that you do, don't sin again. That's it. Like, start from here, start anew, don't do it again. Does God view you as perpetually in adultery if you're in that marriage and not really married? Well, let me just say this. Husbands are recognized in the Bible, even though they're second and third and fourth husbands or whatever. In fact, in uh, John chapter 4, which I, there we go. John chapter 4, we have uh, the Samaritan woman. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't get thirsty, in verse 5, um, and have to keep coming to draw the water. And he, uh, sorry, in verse 15. Verse 16, he told her, Go call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now know is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, I want you to notice that Christ says that she has actually had five husbands. He recognizes that they're her actual husbands in distinguishing them from the guy she has now who is not her husband. 
Now, if God actually did not consider a second marriage, third marriage, fourth marriage, a, an actual marriage that you're to keep, then he would have said, yeah, in reality, you had no husbands except for the one, the first one. That's not what's said. And it's very clear that the fifth guy is not considered a husband because she didn't actually make the marriage contract with him. Notice it has to do with the marital contract and whether it's broken or whatever. Should you ever break the marital contract? No, because you're one flesh with the person. If you have break, broken it in ignorance and you've married another, you've committed adultery and you need to repent of that. You need to confess that sin before God and you need to, from this point on, say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go forward and obey you from now on. I'm not going to divorce again. I'm not going to remarry again. I'm going to remain in the situation I am when you called me. That's what repentance looks like. God requires you to keep your vow, the vow of a divorced woman that you made when you remarried, you are to keep that vow. And if you don't, now you're sinning again. So a lot of people would say, well, now you're sinning because you're perpetually in adultery. And I would say, no, you're not because God forgives you of that. And he looks over it and he expects you now to just stay in that marriage and be married and not divorce again. Or if you are single, he expects you to remain single as you are and not marry again. Whatever situation you are called from that situation on, obey the Lord. Repent of what you've done. Uh, ask forgiveness from God and, and obey the Lord. Now, if you're not remarried and your spouse is not remarried, then I would say reconcile. Uh, you are to then reconcile. You've not married someone else. And so it's not like a prostitution situation like you have in Deuteronomy 24. But feel free then to marry one another uh, again because you're still married anyway in terms of the one flesh union and your covenant really isn't you know, broken because of that even though you broke it on the, the human level. But once you break a human covenant on the human level and you marry another, you've made another covenant, you shouldn't then break that one because you're not allowed to go back anyway to fulfill the other covenant. And in fact, this is important. You've already sinned against God and your spouse in breaking that covenant. You've already sinned. You, that, it's already done. And if you've remarried, you can't undo it. This is why you can't untangle the web. There's no way to undo the sin you've done. So what can you do now? Don't do it again. Confess your sin before God. Let him purify your marriage from this point on realizing that you may have been married before, you may have become one flesh with a prostitute before. You may, may have become, by the way, prostitute here is a word for sexually immoral person. It could just be talking about the girl at the bar. It could be talking about the guy at the bar. It may not be talking about that you passed out money to them. That's not what makes the one flesh union anyway. But Paul is saying that you could possibly become one flesh with even someone you just pay because it's the sexual union that makes you one flesh. Does that mean... No one who is not a virgin can ever get married in Christianity. And Christianity went through and broke up all these marriages to make sure, uh, you know, wait, you were with a prostitute? Well, you're one flesh with her, so you can't be married now. You're committing adultery. No, it's impossible for us to do this. So God in his mercy, I believe, looks over this, looks over our ignorance. And he says, now repent and go from here. Now, let me tell you the exception I would make. I've been trying to point out this whole time when this is done in ignorance, and that's the way I think the church has always treated it. When it's done in ignorance, that's different. When it's done in rebellion, um, 
especially when you're talking about, and let's particularly talk about an adulterous affair. To, let's say a man and a woman, they have an adulterous affair, they really like each other, and they divorce, and they want to remarry one another. Would I say, well, they should just remain uh, as they are, even though in rebellion they knew they were committing adultery, uh, which, you know, even pagans know what adultery is, so there's no excuse there. They run off and they get married. Would I say they stay together? I would say no. I would actually say, no, we're not going to solidify your adultery. It was done in rebellion. It was a vow made in rebellion, in sin against God. It wasn't merely ignorant. It wasn't merely because you didn't know better. Um, It wasn't a a mere trespass. It was you flipping God off and flipping the church off and flipping the Bible off and doing what you wanted. No. No. And, and I believe that's what the church, that's the way the church did it. You're excommunicated. Uh, you can be readmitted to the church if your spouse dies and you're repentant. But at that point, that's pretty much it. Now, there, were, there was some leniency on the person who maybe was the victim in the whole thing, but still she wasn't allowed communion, which was the early church's way of, uh, some of the early church's way of saying, uh, you're excommunicated. You're not really. We're not really sure if you're actually saved, if you're actually a believer or not. Um, so no, if you've committed adultery, you don't get to somehow solidify that adultery by having a certificate. It doesn't matter. You're in adultery. You knew you were in adultery. You continue to be in adultery until you stop being in adultery in that situation. So I'm talking about uh, sins that are committed in ignorance. Most people are ignorant of this these days. And so even as Christians, they're ignorant of this. Uh, and I would say to them, those who did it in ignorance, not knowing this, I would say uh, confession to God, confession to others, let them know what we did was not right. Rather than justify yourself, do not justify yourself. That's not repentance. But rather than justify yourself, say to, teach people, teach the younger ones what we did we were not supposed to do, we didn't realize. Do not do this or you will be committing adultery. Um, and then go on from there. That's, that's what I would urge you to do. So uh, what should you do from here? You should remain faithful in your marriage, whatever marriage you have. Remain faithful in your singleness if you, you've been called in singleness. And wherever you are, continue to obey God. And that's what I think God requires of us. I think God recognizes your marriage. Is it ideal? No. Did God see you as one flesh with the prostitute, with a previous wife? Yes. Is he willing to tolerate and look over that? Yes, because he wants you to keep your vow and to, and to now start over and from here obey him from this point on. Uh, that's what I believe that we can get from these scriptures. I know a lot of people disagree with that. They think, no, you should split up. Uh, or uh, you remain in the marriage but have no sex, just it's platonic. Uh, Let me just say, a marriage vow, keeping a marriage vow means three things according to Deuteronomy 21 that we looked at before. That is you uh, provide food for the person if you're the male, provide uh, shelter or clothing for the person if you're the male, uh, for the female, and both of you provide the bed. And if you're telling a woman, don't provide your bed, you're, you're telling her to break the covenant then. You're not telling her, keep the covenant, accept that part. That is the covenant. 
Uh, it's part of the male covenant to give to her, and it's pretty much the whole of the woman's covenant to give to him. And so in terms of just the, I'm talking bare basics, obviously, not all the other stuff in terms of the man, as a Christian man, should teach his wife and watch her in the word and all of that. That's true too. I'm talking about the very basic covenant though of what makes a marriage. We're not supposed to be telling people don't obey your covenant anymore. Um, and so I disagree with that whole idea. I disagree with the idea of, of breaking another marriage. And I want you to notice that you would have to then hold that the porneia that Jesus is talking about includes any second marriages, there's nothing seem to indicate that that was true, except in the case of a rebellious adultery where the two actually committed adultery while they were married, or one of them was married, and then they ran off and got married. That would have been considered maybe pornea, an, an illegitimate marriage. But not one made in ignorance when they divorced one another, or one person divorced another, and then later on they married someone. That would have been seen as ignorant, and it doesn't seem that they would have been excommunicated for that reason. I don't think we should either. I think instead, uh, I would excommunicate the adulterous couple um, who knew they were in adultery and knew they were committing adultery. But I would tell the couple now who finds himself in a second marriage, third marriage, whatever it might be, remain in that marriage, be faithful to that marriage. Don't repeat the same sin over and over again. Uh, by divorcing again and trying to remarry or, or whatever, or even just divorcing, because that's the sin that Christ is saying, don't do. What God has joined together, let no one separate. From this point on, don't do that anymore. So that's my encouragement to you. I know that's kind of a short lesson. Uh, we don't have, again, an explicit passage. We're trying to do the best that we can with what we have. Uh, our, our real goal is to teach this up front, so that everyone knows this and not have to constantly like, you know, deal with the situations after the fact. The problem is, is the church has really dropped the ball on this and people are not aware of the Christian position. And most people think the Christian position is just the Westminster uh, position, which seems pretty open, frankly, to most people on reasons you can get a divorce and remarried and all of that. And so we're constantly having to field these situations from people who are poorly taught. Uh, from the Bible. And so our real goal is to say, hey, let's just teach it to our young ones at the get-go. And if anyone comes in from there and they send in ignorance you know, through the trespass and whatnot, then let's be merciful and realize that this is about the gospel. And this is about the fact that you can be forgiven and that God does overlook a lot of our sins. And that what we really want to know from this point on is how are we to be most faithful starting now, carrying forward. Um, what is the most faithful thing now? And you may come to a different conclusion on that. That's okay. I'm not going to break fellowship with you uh, uh, over that. Uh, if you, you know, but I do think that you are telling people to sin if you tell them to break their vows when God says the vow is binding on a divorced woman. Um, the marriage vow, marriage vow is a marital vow, and it seems to be binding even in second marriages as God is looking over those things in the Old Testament. It's not as though God didn't see it as adultery in the Old Testament. He did. He just looked over it. He was patient with it, these people who were in ignorance, and he lets their marriages stand as they are, even if they're second marriages or they're in polygamy or whatever they're doing. Um, I think the same thing works here in the New Testament, uh, but he does call us to a further godliness. And so once we learn what that is, we're to live accordingly from this point on. We cannot turn back the tables of time. We cannot unwind the world, but we can, in fact, live from this moment on to please God 
in holiness according to what he has revealed. So uh, let's go ahead and end now in a word of prayer. Father, uh, these are difficult topics. It's difficult to know what to do in these situations. And, and we want to be creational, Lord. We don't want to just go through and rip up marriages and things that have children and ruin uh, our ch- covenant children's lives all the more as divorce does destroy children so many times. We don't want to repeat that, Father, as it destroys previous marriages. It can destroy marriages in the future. We don't want to do that, Lord. Let us be creational. Start from here and do the most creational things we can, raising our families in your word, uh, in your church, and and, uh, seeking to glorify you in our relationships from this moment forward. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen.